to the Human Kinesome Project podcast. Uh, unfortunately, Gary is not available to host today. Uh, that is why uh, myself, Tyler Fraser, I'm the typical producer, and I've been joined uh, very graciously by Corey Paddock. Hello, everybody. And we are so excited to be here. Corey's the president at Kinetics. Uh, I'm the director of content marketing. And our guest, we are thrilled. We have uh, been trying to get this person on the podcast just to have a friendly conversation. <laughs> and they haven't been available as a guest because he's been stuck hosting. Gary McCoy, thank you for joining us. It's awesome to be here. How did it take me 10 episodes to get on the right side of the table? That's all I want to know. What did you not hear when I said, I do not want to be the host? What did you not hear? This is the tension. This is the beautiful tension that you've heard on the Human Kinesome Project podcast. Is Gary just wanting to have conversations, not host. And uh, we finally get to uh, unleash Gary telling stories. So uh, we're, we're pumped to be here, though, Gary. And us, In, uh, us ignoring him. On and us ignoring him entirely. <laughs> knowing, knowing that Love no it. one at Kinetics is better equipped to do what he's been doing. Um, I, I, anyways, we, we are here to learn. And as I said, the very first day I met Gary... Um, I want to have a beer with him. We just cracked a beer, so let's get started. So, yeah. uh, but Gary, yeah, Corey, why don't you kick us off? What's the first question for Gary? We're just going to go dive right into questions. Yeah, Go ahead. I think we should. Nail it. I let's do it. Let's have fun. Why are you interested in human performance, Gary? When did this start? Yeah, lifelong athlete. So in Australia, it's not a sport. Is it's kind of ingrained. Everybody does something. Everybody plays something. You're identified by what you do as a sport. And so growing up, Australian rules, football, cricket, those are the things you get into at school. Um, I started to get good at those. Um, So then your identity kind of attaches to that a little bit as an athlete. So when I graduated high school, which is a different system in Australia, you do your higher school certificate. Once um, you've got like six different subjects, how you score determines your placement on where you're going to go to college. So I was fortunate. I had two offers. I had an offer for graphic design because I had a really good portfolio this year. And I can tell me what you want me to draw. I can draw anything. <laughs> and I had an offer for physical education. So first thing we've learned. First, yeah. thing. first thing. That's a new so, thing. So dirt poor, right? Dirt poor. And I was like, man, it's 75 cents to catch a bus and a tram to go to this graphic design school, RMIT in the middle of Melbourne. Or I can walk 15 minutes to the suburb of Footscray and physical education was a choice. So it's kind of a monetary decision at the time. <laughs> and so, but it ended up being a no-brainer because I attached everything I was learning to the sport of baseball. That's what I was playing at the time. What, what does that even feel like in Australia at that time, baseball? Like how, how, niche, not, how yeah. niche was it at that point? It was so niche that the class I had, I'll never forget first year physical education, we had a class weight training for baseball. Lecturer looked at me, um, Shauna Jones, she was brilliant. She looks at me and she goes, you teach it. Because <laughs> she didn't, they didn't know anything about baseball at the time. So, um, fledgling so let me sport. Guess, uh, yeah. Squats, bench press. I had all those in the original program. I, you know, looking back, I remember what I had. All I did was identify muscles and go, geez, you know, if you use your chest in baseball, bench press must be beneficial. <laughs> Little did I know. What's the biggest difference... Australian baseball, when you when you first step foot in America, what's the biggest difference between the way you trained baseball versus what was happening here? Yeah, so by the time I got here, I had kind of morphed into you know some pretty high leagues like state leagues and, and uh, the Australian Baseball League I played in. 
this is back in like 88 through like 92. So when I get out here, um, I've had a high level of baseball playing, had a work opportunity to come land in Arizona. And then I just found somewhere to play because the amateur leagues out here are massive. Right now, there's like 400 amateur teams in town playing tournaments. So I started uh, started playing and I realized, yeah, I can hold my own here. I was kind of like, you know, Americans come and go, look at the platypus, right? Um, you know, me being in the US, I was like that Australian guy. He's not going to be able to play baseball. Oh, shit, he can play a little bit. So um, got on teams and, uh, yeah, it was just one of those things. I, I think I always had empathy for trying to excel at that sport because the biggest thing, I started playing when I was 15. That's late to start a new sport with such finite skills. So I had to accelerate everything I was doing really quickly. So I had that kind of ingrained in me. The physical education degree came along, bang, you know, now it's kind of in the bloodline. So it was just different. And I was just playing in amateur leagues and considerations. And I got to work for a company called Cybex. First day, I'm catching up with a good buddy of mine who's a physical therapist. And uh, all he does is treat Major League Baseball players. Following week, I'm at the Cleveland Indians working with them. So I'm like, hang on a minute. This is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I'm now kind of rubbing shoulders with practitioners and people that affect the game at that level. Can we back up for a second and just... Because um, I, I don't think I fully intuit the, the fundamental differences in how Aussies approach... Uh, human performance and sporting performance and North Americans approach it. Yeah. So if you were to take things back down to like first principles, mm. like how, how is that approach fundamentally different? I had to try to figure this out, why it was so different when I got here. And when I was working for the technology company Catapult, I used to have to tell a story because everyone was saying, why is Australia so good at sports science? And he was the reason why. In the 1976 Olympic Games that were in Montreal. Australia did not medal. That's that's blasphemy. You know, we, we have to medal. To give some context, what about in Munich in 72, though? Yeah, um, Munich prior, yeah, there was probably... There was a number of gold medals in Munich. Um, silver, but scattered. There, there, We had some really good years. I think we Tokyo Olympics was good. 56 games we had in Melbourne was good, obviously, being the home country. But... To not medal at all in any category uh, was just insane. So the Australian government turned around and they said, look, we're going to throw a lot of money in this initiative we'll call the Australian Institute of Sport. And so instead of you know, you know getting funds, um, all of a sudden there was like 50 million being thrown into this, into this understanding of the way athletes move. So our best minds and our sharpest minds were being brought to Canberra and was it all homegrown talent or was it kind of minds brought in from around the world? Or Early there were some like some Europeans. I think a couple of Americans were involved as well. It'd be really interesting actually to go back and look at the cohort that first you know, organized the principles around training athletes at that institution. But most of the time it was test, understand, measure. You know, what are we looking at? And ironically, the wearable tech company Catapult that I ended up working for, they were born out of AIS because guys at AIS were saying everything we test in the lab, we, we don't see that same impact or those same markers being of relevance no matter what the sport is. So we need the athlete, we need somewhere, we need them to wear something on their back. So that's where Catapult was born. But that was the primary difference. I think we dissected, unpacked, and had a very scientific approach from 1980 onwards, which paid off. 
you know, if you look at the two quadrennials beyond that, Australia became the highest gold medal per capita nation on the, on the planet, basically. Now, comparing that to the US, because I was trying to understand, it was like the National Strength and Condition Association. Everyone's got this certification, CSCS. Where did you, you know, why is this so prevalent? I was asked to get it when I came over when I was working in the US as well. And I couldn't figure it out. And when I dove into that certification, that program was basically born out of Nebraska football where they do it. One guy said, you know what? We want our linemen stronger. Let's get them doing Olympic lifts. So it really initiated in 1976, but that pathway was just train, train heavy in the gym, Hopefully it crosses over and goes into uh, the marketplace. And that's when, like, the disconnect is soft tissue injury. It's massive. There's a massive disconnect there. So is that the way to fundamentally think about it? Is um, the North American approach versus the Australian approach? It's just the thinking about human movement first and the, the type of movement you're trying to kind of optimize for in the field of play or... Um, what have you, and then yeah. working backwards from there around a protocol? Or? Yeah, there's, there's kind of two items, I think. One of them is, yeah, reverse engineering movement is really the way to look at it, and that's something that is deficient. There's not a strength coach who was asked to go out and learn to dissect the vectors of, say, force production and then apply a training module to that. That doesn't exist in the United States. Some sharper guys, you start to see... Um, in, in strength and conditioning start to come out and start to move that way. But there's another factor too. You know, we've got a population here, what, 350 million or close to it getting there. That population, density and opportunity. So if you've got a quarterback on a collegiate team that goes down, guess what? Next guy up, eh, maybe 1%, right? Variance between him and the next guy, next guy up. Australia, there is no next guy up. So that's, you know, it's that scarcity of talent, I think, is the rationale for why we wrapped them, wrapped them so tightly, and let's protect them. Let's make sure that they have every resource available to emerge on the world stage. Do you remember the first protocol that you instituted in baseball that um, <laughs> yeah. that players looked at you sideways? Yeah, and it was funny because I got all the way through <laughs> six months in my first professional year with Florida Marlins, and. Uh, I called the then coordinator, who's now the head of strength and conditioning for the Milwaukee Brewers, Josh Seligman, great guy. And I called Josh and I said, hey, mate, I said, look, I said, I don't know if it's me, but we got one program for everybody, pitchers, catchers, infielders, outfielders. They all do different things. Can you explain that to me? No, that's what they gave me to work with. So I was handed down to him, handed down to me. And I said, okay. I said, so there's some guys kind of, you know, sore, tired. It's, you know, we're coming up on the all-star break here. I said, what if after All-Star break, can I go off book a little bit? You know, I've got a master's degree. You know, I've got this, you know, four certifications that I've got in the U.S. And he goes, all right. He goes, just I'm going to have to keep a close watch on things, make sure nothing's going south. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, no worries, Josh. I'll report on everything. And that's when immediately that next day I've changed the warm-up. I changed every ounce of conditioning model we had. If I couldn't, and I... I had a meeting with the players. I said, look, one of the things I know coming out of programs I've been in, I am a servant to you. And any strength coach you work with, you should be able to look at him and ask you, why am I doing this exercise? What's the benefit not only for what you're going to do on the field for performance, but for you as an individual? Those are two really, really important questions. And 
and a triple A where I was in baseball. I mean, you're on the verge of being a multi-millionaire and in the world spotlight in the sport. So it's that critical last push over the line. Uh, that last half a year, we moved a lot of guys up. It was really good. And so I was getting, and we didn't have a lot of resources, so I didn't have a lot of testing, um, informational data. I was just getting that anecdotal feedback. Boy, I feel really good. I feel so totally different. Now, a guy would come to me and say, I woke up this morning, everything kind of popped on my body. And he goes, I feel brilliant. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know what that is, but we'll work with it, right? Just a summation of, I think, correcting all these chronic forces on the body was was key. You mentioned kind of um, one protocol for the entire team, which, you know, in hindsight makes complete nonsense. Um, Can we maybe go into the weeds a little bit and talk about the differences between protocols between positions. Absolutely. So, uh, and maybe like this, this would be like really in the weeds. Um, even the difference between how would you think about a protocol between shortstop and second base? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then maybe let's just go down the line and um, yeah, just get a, a further understanding and how to think about yeah. things. Well, it's it's funny because if you look at the game of baseball, it's kind of like if. If basketball was just always just zone defense and you set up in a position and waited for something to happen reactionarily, that is what baseball is. When you're in the field, you're reacting to everything. The only one that is creating tempo and motion is a pitcher. So position by position, I've got to look at you know the way every player is kind of, well, they would say he's a third baseman. Is he only a third baseman? Well, sometimes we move him over to first base because he doesn't have a whole lot of lateral movement. They're going to put them on the corners, and those corner guys generally are are good hitters. How a baseball team is built is your best athlete is generally a center fielder who has a lot of range and has a lot of coverage. Your next two best athletes are your shortstop, second baseman, straight down the middle. Then your catcher is is, a pretty good athlete, but also is is very cognizant of the whole kind of a He's like the captain on the field, just leading everything. Everyone else in the corners are generally big hitters, but don't move that well. And that was kind of the pattern consistently that I would see. So if we understood that about baseball and and knew the variability in how they move, a shortstop second baseman, I'll give you an example of this. I roll up to the Cleveland Indians working for Cybex, and we had this product. It was called a Fastex. But what was amazing was all these discs on the floor looked like a big twister mat and a screen, and we would the, the on the screen, the disc would light up and the athlete had to go and move. And so we'd set up this, we called it the Olympic Protocol because we introduced this product at the 96 Games. And we would look at discrepancies of an athlete moving left and right. So I roll into Cleveland, who have purchased this product, and it's in their room. We're putting everybody through diff, you know, this protocol and then different protocols. And we had a, a player there, Robbie Alomar, end up being a you know, perennial all-star. Played in Toronto for a bit as well. Um, Robbie Alomar, we had Jim Tomey, who was like a statue at first place. Robbie at second. Omar Vizquel at short. And uh, Matt Williams was the third baseman this year. I think it was like 1996-7, somewhere in there. But when we tested Robbie Alomar on this thing, he could move towards second base up the middle. He, like his reaction time and, and speed to his right, phenomenal. To his left, horrible. You know, there's a really big discrepancy there. And so I looked at Hargrove, who was a manager at the time, and, and Fernando Montes, the strength coach, and I said, you seeing what I'm seeing here? I go, yeah. I said, tell me about his performance in the field. They go, well, if you look at every photo that makes the front page or the back page of, you know, the, 
the newspaper, here he is going up behind second base, making a play behind second base. And I said, but you've got great coverage there with Vizquel. I said, why don't you move him 10 feet to his left? Because Tony's a statue. He's not going to move. And I said, defensively, we'll, we'll make that shift. And they're like, great idea. So then, you know, I'm an outsider. And now the major leagues are deploying that, that change. And really at that time, there was no way to measure that kind of stuff. Nothing. Um, I test. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was no in-camera, no in-stadium in-camera, no data sets. So how would you go and validate the hypothesis afterwards? You just watch. <laughs> you <laughs> use the eye test. I mean, that's all you've got access to. But, you know, the, the fact that Viscal could range, he had range both ways really, really importantly. So, yeah, so you've got infielders that have to move forward, backwards, and, and a lot of lateral movement. Pitchers are very unique. I mean, there's an art and science to that um, that mechanical motion to create force to propel the baseball. You know, and they're very unique on how they how they've acquired that skill. And I often have pitching coaches who come to me and say, hey, I want to change these guys' mechanics. Well, why? Well, I think he might throw harder down here. Well, you can have a look at it that way, but you've got to realize that he's burned in a motor pattern ever since he threw a crib across a rattle. Uh, rattle across a crib, sorry. And since he did that, right? So undoing a motor pattern, a neurological pattern, is like trying to unwrite the operating system code in our computer, right? Good luck. So let's look at that. Let's understand are there leaks in that system mechanically. Define that and then move towards making what he's got great. Don't try to undo what he's got, especially at that level, especially at a world-class level. Now, if it's a 14-year-old kid, it's a different discussion. Um, You said something earlier about athletes in baseball. You've had your best athlete in center field, then second and shortstop. Yeah. Why do you use the term athlete there versus your fastest versus your most powerful versus what what makes an athlete versus, you know, a hitter hitting mm-hmm. the ball really hard? That's yep. still an athletic move. But yep. what, break down why that to me is an athlete. What, what, what is it for you? Yeah, just um, most athletic, I guess, by standard metrics of speed, um, jump height ability. If you tested these guys, right, that's where they would, that's where it would test out. So I think from a, you know, by the definition, like we've got to define, we're all athletes, right? We're all trying to navigate. I, my definition of an athlete is navigating through an environment for a successful outcome, right? So that's everywhere. That's an industrial athlete. That's a Formula One racer. That's, you know, that's Mike Tyson to, you know, you name the athlete down down the mix. It's it's everybody. So to, it, it's, there's so much variation in baseball and there's so much going on pitch to pitch and, and between the lines in the game. Sometimes, sometimes I think it's more so, it's not the physical skills because baseball is just a real, it's just a skill game. Like for a long time, the, the Indians will say measuring VO2 max. And I'm like, why the hell are you doing this? Why does it matter? The size of this kid's engine doesn't matter. He's going to run 12 seconds. I just want you to go as fast as you can for 12 seconds. Recover, maybe run another 90, maybe another... Run another three seconds. Turn, turn left. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> it. And that's it. So I think, yeah, just understanding the variability of the position, understanding the individual uniqueness of the athlete, those things become critical. Uh, you just mentioned uh, the size of the engine. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the quote that you've said that I think really connected with all of us was... Um, with these injuries happening in baseball, you've talked about not managing the number of bullets in the chamber, but rather building a bigger chamber mm. in the gun. Yeah. Um, walk us through that concept from 
start yeah. finishing. So, and, and it's a really good comparison. So the other, like two weeks ago, I had breakfast with the San Francisco 49ers and my buddy there, Dr. Ben Peterson, we sat down um, and John Lynch came over, general manager at one point. We're having a little quick chat because I was a reference for Ben uh, with him. And we were talking around um, injury and injury mitigation because the 49ers have had a few injuries. And I said, Ben, I said, I'm curious. I said, what's your, what's your average chronic kind of overuse injury versus ballistic injury? Knowing that it's you know, a lot different than baseball, he said, yeah, about 30% of our injuries. And he actually said 32% of our injuries are soft tissue right now. It's like, okay, in baseball, it's, it's flip the script, right? It's 85 to 90% are chronic overuse injuries. So one of the factors I started to look at back in 2007 when this kind of epiphany hit me, I thought, you know what, every athlete I kind of test out, because I was doing something unique at AAA as well, as we're getting ready for the athletes to leave, they were either going to the big leagues or leaving us for the season, I wanted to test them. I wanted to get a measurement of their, their, the, how their bodies were moving. So I used to have them do overhead squat, single leg squat, and I'd see all these asymmetries had been built up. And I was like, yeah, and I was like, hang on a minute. If asymmetry is a bigger problem as it is in, in general life, right? If we start thinking about our asymmetry, the constant fact we've got gravitational pull and an asymmetrical structure, if I load that, shit, I'm only going to make it worse, was the premise that I started with. And so when we had all these squats, squats, <laughs> Front squat, back squat, they were on every single position, right? And I was like, catchers, yeah, you need this. Nobody else, right? I started looking at that and I thought, man, this is akin to putting like 400 pounds on a uh, car, that, uh, on the roof rack of a car that has poor wheel alignment. If I hit the brakes, hit the gas consistently, which is what I'm doing, all I'm going to do is exacerbate that asymmetry. And then I connected with a buddy of mine, Dave Hogarth, who was working for the Angels. He's a physical therapist. And I said, mate, are you doing any end-of-season stuff, pre-season, end-of-season screening? And he goes, yeah, we are. I said, do you want to share data? I said, we can anonymize it. I said, how much variability is there? How much change you go? Yeah, some guys are 30% more asymmetrical at the end of the season. I was like, wow, okay. I said, and these are the guys, and those are the guys that have the the higher the injury rate is what we were seeing with the guys that had that asymmetry. So not only you've got bilateral asymmetry, you've got anterior posterior asymmetry as well. So as soon as you've got all those kind of misconnects, it's kind of like cracking a whip where you've got segments broken. You can't crack that whip. You can't produce force really well at the end of the day. So injury, I think chronic injury to a large degree. And I brought this up at winning meetings, um, 2017, I had the opportunity to speak to every team doctor in Major League Baseball. And it was on the topic of recovery. You know, I was working for Whoop at the time. I was there with my good buddy, Will Ahmed. And uh, we're sitting there and we're talking about uh, recovery. And I'm doing the presentation on data, some of our data findings from a year of being in baseball. And I said, guys, while we're setting up the computer here, before we start, I said, I just want to raise a hand for everybody in the room. So these are all the team docs, mostly orthopedists, right? Uh, head athletic trainers are all in the room. Who thinks here that the chronic asymmetry in baseball is a leading reason why there are so many soft tissue injuries? Every single hand in the room went up. Every single hand. I said, okay, leave your hand up if you know down in your organization, your strength and conditioning staff, your other athletic trainers are offsetting that asymmetry. Every hand comes down. So not only was there a communication disconnect, 
It's like, well, if you know that, why is that inflammation trickled down? And just it just stunned me. So chronic injuries, so many of them, are asymmetrically asymmetrically governed. Back to this, uh, this asymmetry concept, um, once you identify an athlete has kind of um, an extraordinary amount of asymmetry, yeah. how long does it actually take to unwind that? And what does that process look like? Yeah, it's... it's... Can you do it in season? Do you have to wait until the off season? It's, it's individual. Uh, some guys, it picks up really quickly. Other guys, um, depending on the year's... And, and the chronic nature of it. And also, if they are... There's there's certain players that... Say you get a 32-year-old pitcher who is a relief guy. And he's, he's, got, he's getting up every night and he's doing that same thing. They've got to be really cautious about any change we make to him. Because if it negates a performance outcome, even though it's de-risking him from injury, if it negates a performance outcome, the, the program's over. So they're best addressed in the off-season for that reason. But once, you, once you've started to address them in the offseason, you can carry it through the season to try to have that maintenance and balance. And so Dallas Keuchel, who's now with the Chicago White Sox, um, was a Cy Young Award winner in, uh, with the Houston Astros. Uh, he's the guy with the beard, you know, the kind of square beard kind of thing going on. A bit of a character uh, out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Good kid. And uh, I had him when he didn't have the beard and, and, no, and no one could pronounce his name. Um, so he would get done with pitching and he would come in. We were in Oklahoma City and I said, Dallas, I said, here's what I want to start this season for you. We're going to, part of your recovery protocol is going to be working the other side of your body. Proximal distal, I kind of work off what's called myofascial swing system. So it's like an X factor running through the body. So left leg, right arm, right leg, left arm through core management that way so if I'm a pitcher like Dallas and I'm, I'm, I'm that lefty throwing that ball my left arm right leg all those muscles all that work that's been done as soon as that work's been completed there's a shortening process right we're starting to in recovery shorten what I wanted to do with him and I bring him into this hallway in Oklahoma City I had to create exercises I had to just think about the myofascial slings the neurological uh, hit that I was looking for and the vectors I wanted to load in so I had him doing lunges. He would hold a dumbbell up by his shoulder. I'd have him lunge out and I'd have him reach out and touch that dumbbell down over the outside of his right leg, come up and do it again and again. And the volume of that was... His non-throwing arm. His non-throwing arm, exactly. So the volume of work we did was kind of dependent. We, I try to match it up. You know, because of the load, it's a much different differentiated load we would try to put it into a package that made sense for him. And, and again, you resource strapped in the minor leagues. You have nothing to measure with. I said, Dallas, I said, how are you feeling? He goes, my body feels like it's the start of spring training in August, right? And that was just that anecdotal response. I thought, yeah, not only is he not losing any velocity, <laughs> Dallas throws pancakes, he you know, might top out at 90. Um, he... He, he turns around and well, if you saw a pitch, it looks like it looks like it looks like someone throwing a pancake across the kitchen to one of their kids. That's what Dallas looks like to me. Anyway, so he kind of drifts it like this, but he wasn't losing velocity. He felt really good. He was really ha- really healthy, and because he felt so good, his performance was really good. Right. So all of a sudden, it was that year that he got called up to the big leagues. I remember banging on his door in Round Rock, Texas, saying, "Hey, Dallas, wake up, seven a.m." He goes. He goes, I'm pitching tonight. I said, yeah, but not where you think. <laughs> I had to give him the 
giving the word he was getting called up to cool. uh, pitch in Arlington. That's pretty cool. I get I had a lot. That's one of the beauties of AAA. It's kind of funny. It's purgatory uh, for many athletes, but some guys are on the cusp, and you get the chance to share that joy of I just got called up. I've had guys had a guy um, Brandon Barnes um, who was an outfielder. <laughs> He got called up. Like, we would find out that a player was getting called up at the end of the game. So we came in, my buddy Tony DeFrancesco, who's actually here in town now, Bert Hooten, Leon Roberts, that's our coaching staff at AAA. We just got our ass kicked by Salt Lake. Barnsey turned around. He was running. He made a base running error, kind of went to third and got thrown out third base when he shouldn't. That was kind of in the middle of the game. We come in, Tony gets, picks up his phone, and it's the GM, hey, we, we want to call up Barnes. You know, he's the guy we want to call up. And I was like, wow, okay. So I was, it was always my job, go get him, right? And so doors locked in the manager's room. We had a little chat. And this kid, no money, um, wife, couple of kids, um, has put his heart and soul into everything for baseball. I got up and I said to Tony, I said, hang on a sec. And I said, does everyone want to be here for this? And like the coach is like, we don't want to miss this one. So I go out, a little clubhouse. He's sitting with uh, JB Shuck, and they're, they're at the spread. When I would walk out, all eyes would be on me because where's he going, right? Is he, is he coming towards me? Is someone getting called up? What's going on? So I walked into the kitchen. They're both sitting there. We had barbecue that night. I still remember, you know, him wolfing down food. And I put my hand on his shoulder. I said, mate, I said, look, I said, nothing for nothing. Tony wants to talk to you about that uh, base running error, apparently in the sixth inning. So take your time, finish your food, but he needs to talk to you. He's pissed off. He needs to talk to you. So I set that up, right? And I said to Tony, I said, yeah, this is what I've told him. Tony's like, it's perfect. And he, Brandon, come in, shut the door, sit down. We're all sitting in our locker like this, right? You're kind of just waiting. And Tony says, that base, what were you thinking? You know, where's your head? Blah, blah, blah. It gets on him, right? Starts riding him. He goes, well, you better not do it tomorrow in Houston. And he goes, no, what? What? <laughs> and then he just, he, no, I'm not. They will get caught up. No, I'm not. Yeah, you're going to the big leagues. And he just collapsed in tears and was just shaking. And it was one of those moments. We're picking him up and just holding this guy. And that's the, that, I'll never forget that moment because there's so many of those that, you know, I know that I've had that chance to just give them that little bit. And that's, that's why you do that job. Yeah. You know, just to just to to help that guy cross that threshold. You you will always remember that, and something tells me you know where you got the barbecue as well. Mm, yeah, I do. Um, yeah, it was <laughs> Dickie's barbecue in uh, in um, in uh, Salt Lake. Yeah, I know where that came from. That's perfect. One thing you've talked about, and I think you just touched on it, but the reason you haven't written a book on baseball mm. is because of how unique everything is. Yeah. What What are the what are the consistencies? So we've just broken yeah. down. We've just broken down all the things that are so different for everybody. Yep. What What are the things that you know? Is it mental? Is it sleep? Is it what What are the things that everyone yeah. faces? There's a ton of consistencies, and if we're looking at it through the lens of injury reduction. The very first thing is asymmetry. So we're going to offset bilateral asymmetry, and the degree of that comes from assessment, overhead squats, single leg squat assessments, um, understanding kind of the volume that's gone into that asymmetry over the course of you know, sometimes three to five years to get them where they are. So bilateral asymmetry is the very first one. 
The second one is anterior-posterior asymmetry. If I offset those two things, and that's all I did the first year I was in Taiwan and had an injury reduction. If I do those two things, it, it, it was a 75% injury reduction just on those two things alone in Taiwan. And that was one year in. I thought, yeah, man, we're onto something here. Qualitatively, what's the feedback from an athlete that has gone back to kind of neutral, I guess? Yeah, and they're not. And, and this is the thing. Alex McKechnie was the one I, after I was out of baseball, started unpacking a lot of this with, because we connected on a similar thought process of training the body, you know, proximal to, to distal for an athlete, because that's how they neurologically manage. So that's how we wanted. You know, we talked a lot about that training. And I said to him um, at one point, I said, yeah, I said, look, I try to get them as as close to symmetrical as possible. He looked at me and goes, Gary, you'll never get somebody 100% symmetrical. I said, I know. He goes, but not attempting that is non-negotiable. That was Alex's statement to me and it imprinted on me. I said, yeah, you're 100% right. We can't just let it run because it's going to hit the ditch at some point with injury. We've got to pull it back. We've got to look at it. We've got to try to get it centralized as much as we can. And... I would always be really, in the early days, I was really cognizant of like velocity reduction or anything like that. If there was a performance output, I thought, geez, are we, are we changing the kinematic sequence in any way that is detrimental to performance? We never saw it. But there could be something short term too that comes around eventually. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And again, depending on the individual too, because it's like we are constantly adapting and gravity is constant. So the way that we sit, you know, it's like talking about Melindy's 425 program the other week. So people inside have reached out to me and said, hey, I'm worried about starting to run. And I said, well, tell me about what you've done. We, I haven't done a lot. I said, well, okay, I'm going to send you this posterior chain program to get you started there. So let's just get what we can back so you can almost be towards plumb line in the body. Let's weight that backside up so that when you do run, the risk of injury is much lower. We're, we're here in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I started with Connects about a year ago. The first time I met Gary, very quickly into the call, I just wrote, have a beer with Gary. And, and this is, I, I just loved, I loved the way that he shared. I loved the way that he spoke so passionately about um, the stuff that he's doing and, and what he sees for our company. Um, but the other thing that I learned very quickly was that when I said, do you know about the Calgary Cannons, which was the, this ball club in Calgary that we yeah. grew up with. And he said, I actually worked for the Albuquerque Isotopes. Run us down. What's the connection? Wow. Tell us a story about, about that. Uh... <laughs> so the Pacific Coast League um, is probably one of the toughest travel schedules in all of professional sports. Like every time I talk to somebody who's endured that, that's what we talk about. It's like, God, how tough is that damn travel schedule? Right? Albuquerque is pretty far away from the Pacific Coast, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> well, so is New Orleans. That's a, that's a furthest one east. That they were, they were in the Pacific Coast League as well. Yeah. Right. So, so the team moves from Calgary to Albuquerque, New Mexico. The very first year they're in New Mexico, I think, was two thousand and three. Buddy of mine, Matt Stark, who lived in Arizona at the time, would have me work with some kids. He was coaching on the side you know and he called me at one point because their trainer at the time Sean Barrow was the athletic trainer he goes God I, I need some help with conditioning he goes and Starkey turns around and says well I got this Aussie over in Phoenix he goes he knows baseball he goes why don't we bring him out he goes well yeah you, we can't hire him we don't have a position he goes what if you got in the budget we'll pay him and then he went to the front office 
And he said to the general manager, what else? Do we have any money in the budget for, say, a bullpen catcher? And he's like, yeah, a little bit. So all of a sudden, I'm getting paid like 500 bucks to come out for the weekend. You know, sleep at a flea bag motel and, um, and work with them on their homestands. And so this is 2003. It's kind of like when you get your driver's license, getting the keys to Ferrari, because the facilities here were brilliant. They're major league quality facilities. We have 10,000 fans a night coming in. Unbelievable situation. But yeah, that was kind of the connection. And I was picked up by the Marlins full-time right after 2006 World Baseball Classic because we didn't have an injury with the national team. We are the only team that didn't have any injuries. And we had, and I designed this, a recovery protocol that no other team was employing at the time. So that recovery protocol de-risked our athletes for injury. We uh, we got blown out in the first round, didn't have the talent um, at, the, at the WBC that year. So the Marlins are really interested in hiring me. And they said, look, um, we finally got budget for an interns at each level. We, we've we've heard about you from um, you know, your national team exploits. Where do you want to go? And I said, well, I know Albuquerque because I've been out there. And it was only like a seven hours drive from Phoenix. I said, it's easy for me to get there if it's just homestands. And the first half of the season, well, it's just homestands. So I drive out, work with them for that period and come back. $625 a month, hell of a lot of hours. And I had to work two other jobs to afford to do that one. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the connection to uh, the cannons. But um, What did you learn about just athlete management during that period? <laughs> it wasn't any. That's what I learned. It was kind of, uh, it was messy. I kind of lived and died by the fact that i got to get to know my athletes. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Guessing that uh, the budgets were not uh, extravagant at that point. Were you using any technology at that point? Or? <laughs> yeah, the technology you had was a dumbbell and gravity. Those were the two <laughs> technologies we had. Uh, I never had, <clears throat> I had a exercise bike in the weight room. I had a um, kind of a multi-stack and some dumbbells, and that was it. No tech, nothing measurable at all. What about paper and pen? Did had you paper and pen. Yes, I did. And I actually went one step beyond that, went to Excel spreadsheet. Okay. Ooh, yeah, pretty taught myself Excel. That was fun. <laughs> but, but the even worst part was the Marlins shifted affiliates in 2009, and they moved us to New Orleans. We come in on the back end. I don't know when. I can't remember when Hurricane Katrina was. It might have been 2008, 6, 7, 8, somewhere in there. They had not recovered in this ballpark from... It was used as a morgue for Hurricane Katrina. This place was a mess. It was dirty. They had no resources. And we come to find out the owner was using the the New Orleans team as kind of a lost leader. We'd get no fans. It was miserable. Uh, absolutely miserable place. Good people, but miserable experience overall. But talk about resources. I felt like I'd gone from you know the top of the mountain to the... Bottom, I said we went from A for Albuquerque and it was New Orleans Zephyrs to Z for Zephyrs. That's how far we went down the alphabet. It was hard. And we couldn't even get good food. Like the clubhouse guy was bringing out, he'd order half a dozen pizzas and throw them in the kitchen and walk out. And I'm like, what are we doing here? <laughs> so it was just, it was an awkward transition. But yeah, you've got to do a lot with a little. And you've got a travel schedule on top of you in that league that is incredibly compressive. And you've got to figure it out. And it's like... It's like sailing. What was the worst stretch of games? Like, walk us through a travel schedule. (laughs) So this is a beauty. So my mate Tony DiFrancesco, who I mentioned earlier, I've lunch with him tomorrow. He's in town. He's now with the Mets. We got on a trip. We had a roadie that went from... We were in Oklahoma City. So I moved over to the Astros by this time. It was 2010? No, 2011. 
they flew us because Pacific Coast League says you're never on charter flights like you are in the big leagues. When you get to the big leagues, TSA come to your locker room, check you in, get on the bus, and you're out on the tarmac, and it's a free for all with with chef on the on the plane land, and boom, off you go, right? No, in the Pacific Coast League, you've got to be on the first flight in the morning in case there are delays. And, and so you've got to get to that game that night because you know, home teams sold all those tickets. We flew from Oklahoma City to Sacramento, four-game stand in Sacramento. Drove a bus down a couple of hours to Fresno for our next four-game series. We were then required to get on the road because Oklahoma City have a series for college athletes that has played in that stadium, so they push us on the road for a while. So the third set of four games was over in Nashville. So after the end of the four-game series in Fresno, I said to the trainer, athletic trainer is the one who's the travel agent too, I said, so what's the plan here, mate? He goes, oh, yeah, we've got to sit around the clubhouse now until about 1, 1.30, and we're going to bus back to Sacramento because guess what? Southwest, who are the cheapest carrier, don't fly out of Fresno. I was like, great. So we get back to the, um, <laughs> we get back to the airport in Sacramento at like 4 a.m. The counter at Southwest doesn't open until 5.30. We're on bags just trying to get whatever sleep we can on the floor in the, in the line waiting to check in. At Southwest, we up, get on that flight, connect through Vegas, land in Nashville at 4 o'clock the next day. Everyone's gassed. We're on no sleep. We play that game. We're horrible. I looked at Al. I looked at Tony. I said, this is going to cost us three or four games, man. We're going to have nothing. we got nothing in the tank. Ironically, we had a, a coordinator come in the next day, knocking on my door at like 7 a.m. He goes, why aren't you guys at the gym? And I was like... I looked at him, I just shut the door, I said, go ask Tony, because we, we, no one's had any sleep, right? I said, it's just, it's insane. But those are the kind of, that, and that was a flight trip. I mean, you also have 13-hour bus rides mm-hmm. sometimes too. The the good old Albuquerque to Iowa bus trip, when you're hitting every, you know, truck stop, you know, hitting truck stops at three and four in the morning, I made a joke the other night, I said, I know every loves truck stop on these bus routes uh, in the Pacific <laughs> Coast League. But it's, you know, so... And that's a problem. You've got a recovery issue. You've got a nutrition issue. You've got a resource issue. You've got a sleep, you know, massive sleep issue going on most of the time with these guys. And they still go out and perform every night. Now, <laughs> it, it takes a lot to be able to pull that off. I'm just picturing, like, you arrive at a Lowe's truck stop. You're hungry. You're, you're a player. And just the, like, just the crap that you're going. <laughs> there must have been some players... That stood out that just put the worst garbage into their bodies and it still didn't matter. And would, some- well, yeah, half of them, like, you'd roll up there because I would go in, my standard MO was chocolate milk because I'm a chocolate milk guy. <laughs> I'd go in and get a, a chocolate milk and if I was feeling good about myself, I'd get a bag of potato chips. That was about all I could afford on, on my salary too, right? So I'd roll up and I'd just watch what everybody else was grabbing, whether it was beef jerky you know, the Dominicans would stand in the front of the store going, I don't know what to get, you know, because you know, just uh, we don't know any of this stuff, right? And I'd try to break it down um, in, in terms of trying to think, God, is there any protein in here? You know, it's all sugar, it's all carb, it's all, you know, it's all crap. It's just, the, it's it's awkward. And you roll up there and there's a hot dog that looks like it's been there since 1976, mm-hmm. right? You're like, Jesus Christ, you know, I'm not going to eat that. It's got more wrinkles on it than I have, you know? So it was just, yeah, that that... Yeah, that's that's that was a challenge. <laughs> I think I think Corey, um, we're probably in the point where we should do some quick hits here. All right, let's do it. This segment of the podcast is called "Overrated, Underrated." Ah, 
Love it. So I'm going to throw out either a name, a place, a concept. <clears throat> I'd like for your just your initial reaction on if this is underrated or overrated. If you want to riff on it, then go ahead. Okay. Are you ready to begin, Gary? <sighs> Deep breath. Refill. 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 Well, almost. Almost out of being. I'm ready. Fire away. The Olympics. Underrated. 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 Overrated as a... <sighs> Overrated probably as a content developing cash kind of cow that it is now. Um, but the Olympic ideals, I think, still hold true for every Olympian who's ever been. So um, if you're athlete-centric, uh, Olympics are underrated. I mean, if you get to the Olympic Games, you can go work in Olympic Games. It's, it's significant. Melbourne, Australia. Underrated. Best coffee in the world. Best beaches in the world. Underrated. Very similar to, very eclectic, very similar to San Francisco in many ways. If, if Sydney was Los Angeles, uh, Melbourne would be San Francisco. Why coffee? Why coffee in Melbourne? I don't know. I have this argument all the time with my mate David Nilsson, who's the head coach of Team Australia, Major League Baseball All-Star. Uh, when I was working with him in Brisbane, he said, I said, mate, the coffee up here is no good. He's like, hang on, hang on. He goes, the coffee's identical to what it is in Melbourne. I said, no, 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 the coffee's not as good. He goes, I'll tell you why the coffee's better in Melbourne. Because 90% of the time, your skies are grey, you've got rain, and you just feel better about your coffee. And I was like, okay, well, I can't, I, I, I can't undo that. So, um, all right, I'll give you that for now. But, yeah, I don't know why. Um, we're kind of the coffee capital of the world. Um, uh, my buddy Peter Moylan, who pitched for the Braves, he was the one when he got to the big leagues, he brought in the most elaborate coffee makers he could in there to, to create coffee, to make coffee. And it's just, it's an art form there. It's like, you know, do, we, do, you, want to get a, do you want to get sushi at the Circle K or do you want to go to a great place in Japan, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have coffee. Uh, Australian rules football. Underrated. Some of the most athletic guys in the world. You're talking about a sport where guys run kind of a pretty much a half marathon by position every game. They don't wear pads. They collide full speed at, it, at one another. And it's kind of where sports science was born in many, many ways because of the ballistic nature of that sport. When Catapult got involved in Aussie Rules football, the one challenge was there's a lot of hamstring injuries. So they started this load management practice. And when we start to understand, okay, if we can manage loads on a player and reduce hamstrings, sure enough, injuries went down. But there was this interchange thing that happened over and over and over again. And we were changing our players the whole time. And the old stalwarts were like, ah, the game is changing. Yeah, it's changing for the better. It's faster, more dynamic. Um, and if you've never watched it, um, good luck trying to understand it. But yeah, it's a, it's a tough sport. Barry Bonds. Wow. And the answer's got to be overrated, underrated, right? Overrated, underrated. <sighs> Can I give you two answers on that? Can I give you both? Uh, underrated as a hitter. I mean, literally. I mean, the guy's best hitter of all time when you, when you calculate what he could do. Uh, overrated as a human being. I didn't know he was super highly rated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Overrated. Anyone who likes it. Whatever it was, it's still overrated. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Andre Agassi. Oh. Yeah, I, two lenses. Um, 
Yeah, probably he's right down the middle too. I wouldn't say he's overrated and underrated. Um, properly rated. Properly rated, yeah. He's properly rated. Now, my cousin who was on a scholarship at UNLV used to blow me off. For four years she was here, would blow me off at Christmas because she was going to the Agassiz for Christmas. I was like, okay, I get it. Um, <laughs> Andre, I watched at Indian Wells. I really started to understand a lot of mind-body recovery with him. We saw him hitting there one day. I said, hi, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, my cousin, Janelle, that, that, oh, yeah, I remember her. She'd come for Christmas. Yep, that's her. Great. Talk to him. And one of the things we were looking at was his heart rate because that was really the only stuff we had. We had a Polo Team 2 system. I said, yeah, let's just look at physiologically. Let's look at him. And I remember they would work him to a point where it was like a rally and he'd have a 20-shot rally. His heart rate would be up like 180, 185, somewhere in there. Boom, hit that last one. Put his head down, walk to the baseline, stand there, on average 12 seconds, heart rate would drop 100 beats. So when he's 41 years old and people saying he's the fittest athlete on the tour, that's what they were referring to, is that cliff to get back down to base so you can produce output again. And he would just work through his head. I actually took that practice into the NHL working with the Ducks as well. Wow. Just Uh, incredible. Paul Hogan. <laughs> uh, legend. Underrated. Uh, never, met, never met him. But any, any, any bloke who's painting the Sydney Harbour Bridge, when there was traffic jams on the bridge, he'd come down and f- tell a few jokes to alleviate the tension of the drivers. And then somebody said, mate, you should be on TV. There's a... Go, go on this... Um, I was like, it was called New Faces. And so it was like a contest. So he rocks on, tells a few jokes, and uh, next thing you know, he's invited on to a TV show. He becomes a uh, like the man about town, get his opinion, come on. Next thing you know, he's got his own TV show. Next thing you know, he's got a movie, right? He's got this movie going, and um, he st- wants to get back to Australia desperately. Had some tax issues, apparently. He didn't pay some taxes. But uh, lives in Venice, California now. I'm not too far from the beach. I know kind of someone pointed his house out to me one day. I was like, I'd love to talk to him. He's like in his 80s now. But really put our country on the map relative to tourism in the United States and everything else. When I came over in 1988 with a baseball team when I was still playing, um, we were actually here in Arizona. We were playing against Arizona State University. And so we'd go out to the bars at night and you know, we'd try to talk to the girls. And the girls come up, oh, you're Australian. I love your accent. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Melbourne. And they kind of give you the blank stare. And I was like, I said to my mate, yeah, this ain't working. I said, next time they come in, <clears throat> you know, next time we get their question, it's Walkabout Creek. That's what we Walkabout Creek. So sure enough, we dropped the Walkabout Creek. Oh, my God, you're from Walkabout Creek? Is it really just one big pub there? Yeah, that's it. You know, Don's still there. And, you know, I think they thought Crocodile Dundee was a documentary. Yeah. It was like it was insane. But, uh, yeah, probably did more in the right attitude. Of, like, that's the other thing about Australia. He kind of, I think, either crafted the attitude globally or summated it so well that yeah, I've got to credit some of that because I think my ascent in professional world here is being remembered as an Australian and there's no barriers, right? If I came in as a Russian, right, (laughs) I'm going to get that, you know, the body language change, you know, it's just, it's going to be different. But I think, yeah, I credit a lot of that to, yeah, the, the timing of me being in the U.S., to, to be fair, also, we we did try and name the podcast. That's not a podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, some great lines in that uh, that that show. But um, 
Yeah, I try to force my wife to watch it every now and then just to, you know, ground her a little bit. <laughs> remind her where you're remind from. Remind her to remember where I'm from, right? <laughs> We've got one last name. Uh, Steve Wynn. <laughs> wow. Okay, so never been, never been intimidated by anybody I've ever had to work with until this guy. So... I'm working for Cybex, I'm the director of education. Um, our rep had sold a line of equipment. This story might be a little long, but <laughs> edit this down. We sold equipment to the Mirage, right? So we were the line of equipment inside of the Mirage. People were loving it, blah, blah, blah. We had, he was building the Bellagio. We'd won that account as well. And these are big accounts, right? He All of a sudden, he wanted mahogany slats on the decks of the treadmill. And we're like, okay, we'll figure that out for an extra 50 grand. Right? These were big accounts. I mean, spare no, spare no coin. So when we when that deal was done, we're like, we changed our line of equipment. We went from our VR, um, our first resistance line, to our VR2. And we had a lot of different articulations in this line as well. So part of my job was time to, was to go out and educate people on the benefits of this equipment. So the national accounts, the big accounts I would send me out to. So I go to Vegas, meet uh, Victor Verhager, um, uh, was our rep there, meet him, go to, they closed down the Mirage and I was doing education for the, for the staff in the Mirage. About two hours worth of station by station. Here's how to test it. Here's the things. Here's the benefits of this. Here's how to put a program together using all this equipment. About gas, right? Done. Kind of shaking hands with everybody. Guy who's the manager comes over and says, don't go anywhere. Mr. Wynn wants to come down and, and train with you. I'm like, <laughs> shit. Okay. All right, great. No worries. I said, yeah. I said, you know when he's going to be down? So sure, 45 minutes later, right? I'm thinking I want to get out of there, you know, go and you know, get a good steak, $2 steak in Vegas, right? <laughs> so I'm waiting for him. He comes down. And first and foremost, he's, he's with like three or four people. This girl walks in ahead of him and she's dressed to work out. And, and she, she talks to the guys at the front desk and she goes, oh, you must be Gary. I'm Mr. Wynn's personal flight attendant. And I was like, oh, it's good to meet you. She goes, do you mind if I go through some of the workouts with you? Know, not at all, not at all. You know, personal flight attendant. So we're waiting for him to come in. I say, so what? Uh, I said, you want like a little Learjet kind of thing going around with him? She, she just looks at me and laughs. She goes, no, we're on a 747. <laughs> uh, what are you talking about? A 747? And she goes, yeah, and we have seven of them. He goes, Mr. Wynn flies those 747s if, if they've got a whale in Dubai. They want to bring back to Vegas. Sometimes Mr. Wynn will be on there. As soon as that guy's got on the plane, he'll drop $10 million before he even gets to Vegas on different stuff that they're doing, right? And she's the personal kind of concierge. I'm like, right, jeez, okay. understand. So in comes Steve Wynn. Megadeth t-shirt, cut off shorts, right? <laughs> Looks at me. And I had warnings about him too. Like the like some other assistant that came in said, you're, you're going to be training Mr. Wynn. Um, he has glaucoma, but do not touch him. Do not lead him. Um, try to, you know, just... Verbally tell him where things are because if you touch him, he'll likely punch you, right? I'm like, shit. So, yeah, I'm set up. Like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. He comes barreling in. And he goes, you're Gary? And he shakes my hand. Yeah, I said, I'm Gary. He goes, um, he goes oh, you're Australian. He goes, I've got a big wig media guy from Australia coming in tomorrow, Kerry Packer. And Packer was like the Rupert, like a competitor to Rupert Murdoch in Australia. Kerry Packer did all the, a lot of cricket. Uh, he did a lot of just big media conglomerate, but he was coming in to gamble. He goes, I need all the dirt you've got on this bloke. You're right. <laughs> you, need all, 
dirt. I said, mate, I don't know him. I said, but he had, <laughs> he had some issues. I said, some there's little stories. I gave him a few little stories. So take him through the workout and show him the equipment and stuff. And it gets better. So the same time I was closing on a house, I was actually buying a house here in Arizona. And my now ex-wife was, was calling me on my cell phone. It was about that big. Uh, she was calling me saying, hey, um, I need you to sign off on this stuff. And I was like, yeah, okay. And he overheard the conversation. He goes, what do you need? I said, is there a fax number here at the gym? He goes, no, hang on. He gets on the phone with her and goes, this is the number, you ready? Boom, gives him the 702 number, blah, blah, blah. Great. And I was like, okay, I've got to get that. Fa- I'll tell you who that was later, right? Hang up and show, right? And, and we follow him. And it's me, the flight attendant now, she's gone off somewhere. It's him, his another assistant that popped it out of nowhere, right? And another guy, and they're like, follow me. And I, we start walking. We're going through the, you know, through on the gaming floor and stuff, hit this door. That I didn't even know there was a door there, down to his office, which is like six levels underground. Underground. Underground, right? And I'm talking, so I'm nervous as shit, right? So I'm trying to talk, trying to make light of the situation. I said to this guy who's walking right next to me down these corridors, and he's there talking up there. I said, um, I said, uh, mate, I said, what do you do here? He goes, oh, I'm the uh, Mirage psychologist. And I'm like, oh, that's great. I said, full-time psychologist. Oh, that's awesome. I said, so you help people with gambling problems? <laughs> Naive son of a bitch I was, right? He turns around and goes, no, no, no. He goes, hang on. He goes... He goes, you see the carpet upstairs, how your eyes can't focus on it? Yes, everything's designed to get your eyes to gaming level. We pump X amount of oxygen out of the statistics. We're doing everything we can. There's drinks. Yeah, we, we charge them up early, water them down late. We do everything we can to get every dollar out of your pocket. I'm like, you bastard, right? I have no chance of winning anything here, right? So... <laughs> I get the fact, sign off on that, send it, and he basically kicks me out of his office, which was elaborate, but like... Four layers underground. I was somewhat paranoid, right? Four layers underground. I come out of there. It's literally two weeks later. I get a phone call from the CEO of Cybex. What the fuck happened in Vegas? I go, what do you mean? I think everything went pretty well. He goes, Mr. Wynn wants all that Cybex, our product, out of his gym right, right away. So what happened? Come to find out, his good buddies were Schwarzenegger. So Arnold comes in to work out on this new line of equipment. I was like, oh, what is this? I don't have this in my house. This, this is, must, be, must be lower level Cybex equipment. I was like, you got to shit me. So I was like, okay, so now we've got to get on a plane, go back out, grab the sales rep, go meet Schwarzenegger and educate him. And do, Mr. Schwarzenegger, do you want the new equipment or not? This is what it's for. He didn't want anything to do with it. But, and Steve actually changed out the equipment back. We end up changing it back. And so it's just, it's funny that influence pattern, how it happens. But uh, yeah, most intimidating guy I've ever worked with by far. Scared the crap out of me. Oh, it's one of the things he said to me, and this is like to, to make it even worse. Um, he said, oh, I forget how the conversation went, but he just looked at me and goes, oh yeah, if they ever drain like me, there's, there'll be a number of uh, bodies in there with my fingerprints on them. I was like, Jesus Christ, that, that, that's how that to me. I'm not panicking, right? This guy's basically telling me he's connected and just don't fuck up. You know, <laughs> it was insane. It was insane. But how would you rate him? <laughs> um, yeah, as a uh, client in a gym setting, yeah, overrated. 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 <laughs> overrated. <laughs> My Perfect. God. 
Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it back memories. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll redact most of that. Yeah. So that, yeah, so we'll right, yeah. that later. yeah, the fucks on the shits can go right away, I guess. Yeah. You can take those out. <laughs> um, well, yeah, Gary, this was this was a treat. I don't, is there anything else you want to chat about, Tori? No, no, this is great. We want to be very sensitive to your time. Yeah, we want to be sensitive to your time. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, this is is the part of the podcast where Gary always talks about um, his guests. But I will speak from uh, my personal experience with you. It's been almost a year since we met. Uh, I'm loving learning from you, working with you. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed as listeners of this podcast, I went into producer mode and just got to sit back and listen to Gary and Corey chat, um, which is one of the things I get to do here at Kinetics is just learn from people who are trying to make movement more meaningful. And uh, this is another one of those days. Uh, I, I need to, I didn't know you could do art, so that's one of the <laughs> things. I'm going to need a commissioned piece for Corey and Ty. Um, but yeah, this is it is great because this is yeah. this is literally the second time we've got to see each other in person. Yeah. So uh, a real treat, though. Um, oh, uh, don't we have to uh, end with those questions? Gary, uh, what's next for you? Yes. And where, where can we find you? Yeah, I'm not... I don't want to give a, you know, kind of a bullshit canned answer to this. I, you guys know me. I'm really passionate about the space that we're in. And when it was actually Brianne and Sam uh, called me with an offer to join the company, I was kind of blown away by Brianne's presence and the story behind Orphix and it's and what she's delivered. I mean, she, she changed lives with that product. And then talking to Sam about you know, some of the biomechanical efficacy, the bar he is holding scientifically on product. Um, You don't get that that often. You know, you normally come into a situation with a company where you've got a whole bag of shit that you've got to polish up and get out into the market for sale, right? That's been my job. You know, and I won't mention the companies that I could put that label on them. There's a couple, right? And this one is so totally different. It's like we can't wait to get this into the Mm -hmm. space and we're our... We're our own worst enemy by holding the bar so high, and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And and that's what I love about what we're doing because this is not about answering questions. It's about asking the next level of questions, and that's where I think we're going to be. We're going to be living in this with this for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for thanks for joining us, Gary. Thanks, Gary. Way too formal. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm three quarters of the way through one beer. 